This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, so if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn there to Acts chapter 2. It'll also be on the screen when we get there. When I was a kid, we used to go to the Astrodome to watch the Astros and the Cubs play. Um, you know, we grew up in, in the central Texas area, but for whatever reason, my older brother is a huge Cubs fan. It's probably the fault of WGN and Harry Carey. Uh, but he's a huge Cubs fan, so we would go to Houston to watch the Astros and the Cubs play, and we would go to a whole series, three, three games in a row, and just spend the weekend or whatever doing that in the summertime. Uh, we would get there early, like three hours, three or four hours early, because we knew where the Cubs players would be dropped off to get into the stadium. So we would, we would go over there, and, uh, and they would be dropped off one by one in a cab. So what we would do is we would go over there, we would sit on the curb, and we would have our baseball cards kind of spread out, you know, and a cab would show up, drop a player off, and we would, we would look at the player, we would find his card, and then we would go get his autograph. Um, and that, that's kind of what, what we would do for those, those games. Now, if you're ever wanting to get an autograph, uh, don't go to the Astrodome. I don't think it exists anymore. But there's two parts to getting an autograph. The first thing is you have to know who you're dealing with. You have to know who just got out of their cab and is trying to get into the stadium so you can have the right card. Um, I'm the youngest of two. My older brother uh, would bully me sometimes. He still does a little bit. Hurts my feelings every time. Uh, so there was one time where uh, a guy, uh, uh, guy kind of slipped past our notice, and he was headed into the stadium, and my brother said, I don't know who that is. Take this piece of paper, go get his autograph, figure out who he is so we can get, get him on the, uh, on the right baseball card. And so I ran over there, and, you know, sir, can I please have your autograph? And he starts to sign this piece of paper, and he says, I don't mind signing, but I just sell concessions. <laughs> so I got that guy's autograph now. He, he might be the president now. I don't know. You know, I might be, he might be famous. Um, you got to know who you're dealing with. And the second part is uh, you got to make, make sure that you put yourself in the right position to receive. So uh, when you're going to get an autograph, you, those, those guys, are, they're headed into the game. They've got a routine. Um, they're trying to get in the building. They don't mind signing, but they don't have time for you to sort through your cards or, oh, I forgot my marker. They don't have time for that because um, they're moving on. And so you've got, to, you've got to be there ready, sir, can I please have an autograph? You have to figure out who you're dealing with, and you've got to put yourself in the right position to receive. So, so here's what we're going to see. We're going to be in Acts 2. Here's what we're going to see this morning. Who are we dealing with? We're dealing with God. God is a promise keeper. God never fails to deliver on a promise. And then what we're going to see is how we, we need to put ourselves in a position to receive those promises. So we're in a series looking at the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look in Acts 2, we're going to see when the Holy Spirit came in power on the church. So Acts 2 1 through 13, let's read this text together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty 
rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. We're going to look at this text together, and it divides into three sections, the day, the spirit, and the people. Let's begin with the day. In verse 1, the day had come. When the day of Pentecost had arrived is what the text says, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three major feasts uh, for the people of, of Israel. One where they would have to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Uh, Pentecost means 50 or 50th. It's counting 50 days after the feast of the Passover, which is another one of those major feasts. So the feast of the Passover celebrates when the people of Israel were, uh, they were slaves in Egypt, and God said, I'm gonna send, the, the angel of death is gonna pass over, and if you have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, uh, you won't lose the firstborn in your house, but, but everyone else, they're gonna lose the firstborn. The firstborn is going to die in their house. The blood of the lamb is necessary. And that's exactly what happened. They had the blood on their, their doorpost, but the Egyptians didn't. And, and every house lost the firstborn, but, but the people of Israel escaped. And they escaped through the Red Sea out of slavery from Egypt. So from then on, they celebrate this feast called the Passover. Well, 50 days later, there's another feast that they celebrate. They all come to Jerusalem to celebrate. It's called Pentecost. It, it, uh, in Deuteronomy 16, uh, the Lord tells them, you're going to come to the place where I dwell. The place where God dwells uh, for the people of Israel was either the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem. So come to Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. And what you're going to do is you're going to rejoice over what God has done. And years later, uh, they kind of shifted that a little bit. And, and part of what they celebrated is that the Lord met them at Mount Sinai and gave them the law. So Pentecost became, became a celebration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. When that happened, Exodus 19, Moses ascends the mountain. The people, they're at the base of the mountain. 
God says, don't touch it or you'll die. So they're at the base. Moses goes up the mountain. God gives them the law. When, when the Lord descends on that mountain, there's fire and there's smoke and there's thunder and there's lightning. And the Lord gives the law. So you have the Passover and the feast that celebrates it. You have Pentecost, the, the feast that celebrates that. And Acts 2 1,500 years after these events, in Acts 2, we're told about this story that takes place at the Feast of Pentecost. This feast that celebrates all that God had done. In obedience to the law, Jews from all over the world have gathered here in Jerusalem for the feast. Now, on this particular year, 50 days prior was the Feast of the Passover. But something special happened that weekend. See, 50 days prior, that weekend, Friday, Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified, and on that Sunday, he rose from the dead. 50 days after that, they're all in town again for this feast of the Pentecost. And the text says that the disciples were all gathered together. On this day, why were they gathered together? They were gathered together in obedience to what Jesus had told them. At the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells his disciples, you are gonna be my witnesses. But before that happens, I need you to wait in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And the city means Jerusalem. I need you to wait there until you're clothed with power. And then here at the beginning of Acts, Jesus says to them, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then he says a little bit later, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So Jesus has promised this Holy Spirit to come and told them to wait in the city. Don't do anything, wait. So here they are. Waiting, believing, hoping, but waiting. Maybe not exactly sure what they're waiting on or how they're going to know when the Spirit comes, but waiting nonetheless. Jesus said wait, so here they are waiting. Have you ever waited for God to come through? Maybe you're waiting right now. There are many in our congregation who are looking for jobs. It's tough out there. And, and you know, like, God, God's got me. God's going to take care of me. You're walking in faith, but you're still waiting. Maybe you're waiting on something else, physical healing, Maybe you're waiting for a relationship to be restored, or maybe there's some other situation that you need resolved, and you know, like, God's got me. I'm gonna walk in faith. I believe that he's gonna look after me, but here you wait. I know your prayer and, and my prayer is that you'll get to experience what the disciples experienced. Verse one, the day had come. Verses two through four, here's the next thing, the spirit fell. 
I want you to notice in verse 2, it says, and suddenly. Imagine the scene. The disciples, uh, as you read the rest of Acts, you'll figure out it's probably, if you're trying to paint this picture in your mind, it's probably 120 disciples. You know, there were the 12 but then Jesus had like a crowd that followed. He had a bunch of disciples, not just his close 12. So it, it was likely 120 people gathered at this house in Jerusalem, probably near the temple, and they're just waiting. And then it says, verse 2, and then suddenly, in a moment, in an instant, everything changed. They were waiting on Jesus to keep his promise. And suddenly, he did. That's my prayer for you. If, if you're walking through a time where you just feel like you're waiting on God, my prayer is that suddenly everything can change in a moment. And suddenly, the Spirit fell. How do we know the Spirit fell? Well, the text gives us three pieces of evidence, three signs that the Spirit fell. Number one is in verse two, they heard something. They heard a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Last Sunday, believe it or not, it rained here. And uh, I was driving at that time, and I saw off in the distance as I was driving, I saw what looked like it was pouring down rain. And I noticed the cars coming towards me did not have their windshield wipers on. And it was dirt, not rain, blowing across the road. I stopped at a stoplight, and the wind was so forceful that my car was shaking. I could feel the wind. The text says here that this was not a wind. This was a sound like a wind. And this sound filled the entire house. It filled the house. The, the, the Hebrew word and the Greek word for spirit, we, we identified this a couple of weeks ago. It's the same word for the word wind. So when we have this sound of a wind, that should signal our minds to think, wait a minute, is this the Spirit? And then we're told that the sound filled the house. Now, filling of a house also signals us to the presence of God. I think about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a portable temple that the people built. Moses, Moses had this built, and, and at the end of uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, it's the, the tabernacle is complete, that's where God dwells. That is God's house among the people, and it's built. And Moses says when it was completed, the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And he describes it like a cloud, like smoke. Hundreds of years later, King Solomon builds a permanent tabernacle, a temple in Jerusalem, a new house for God. And same thing, when that building is completed, the glory of God filled the house again. And they describe it was like a cloud. And it was so thick that the priests couldn't stand to minister. Well, here in Acts chapter 2, the house is filled again, this time with a sound like a mighty rushing wind. They saw something. That was evidence that the Spirit was there. The second piece of evidence that the Spirit had come, not only did they hear something, but in verse three, they saw something. They saw something. 
divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. Fire indicates the presence of God. We could think through lots of things. We could think through uh, the burning bush to Moses. That indicates the presence of God. Uh, We already talked about Mount Sinai when Moses went up the mountain and the Lord descended on the mountain in Exodus 19. It says there was smoke, and it says there was smoke because there was fire. Fire signals to us the presence of God. I'm also reminded of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist, he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And some of the people who are coming to be baptized, they wonder, are you the Christ? He says, well, I'm not the one who's to come. There is one that's coming who's mightier than I. And when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here we have in Acts chapter 2 fulfillment of what John the Baptist was talking about. The Spirit has come. It sounded like wind, but it looked like fire. What happens when there's wind and fire? I get a notification on my phone that says there's dangerous wildfire conditions when there's wind and there's fire. Why? Because the situation is out of control. And that's what we have here in Acts chapter 2. In this scene, the disciples are about to engage in a ministry that they could have never come up with on their own. This is just the beginning of Acts, and you're going to read the rest of the book and see all kinds of things that took place. They couldn't have planned it this way, or strategized it, or like vision cast. They didn't get the ministry leads together and a whiteboard and plan this out. The Holy Spirit shows up, and the Holy Spirit does whatever he wants to. And the ministry of the disciples takes off from here, and the church is born. They saw something. Not only did they hear something, not only did they see something, the third piece of evidence that the Spirit had fallen is in verse 4, they said something. The text says, because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is not referring to ecstatic utterances. We'll see in verses 5 through 13 that actually what's taking place is the disciples are speaking in languages that they had no way of knowing. Actual human languages. Because the people had gathered from all over the world and they spoke different languages. And the disciples were now speaking in those languages. Well, what, what were they saying? Verse four tells us whatever the Holy Spirit wanted them to say. Well, well what was that? What, was they, what, what were they saying? Verse 11 says they were talking about the mighty works of God. Now think about this with me. People, Jews from all over the world had gathered for Pentecost. They're told in Deuteronomy 16, come to the place where God dwells, Jerusalem, and and then what you need to do is you need to rejoice and celebrate all that God had done. And they get there and they hear someone speaking in their own language. These disciples And they're telling them about the mighty works of God. What 
What had God done? 50 days earlier, Jesus was crucified, and he rose from the dead, and he is Lord, and if you put your trust in him, you'll have the forgiveness of sins, you'll have eternal life. They're speaking this in languages that they can understand. The Spirit fell. What happened when the Spirit fell? The church caught on fire. And as Dr. Tony Evans has observed, when the church catches on fire, the whole city takes notice. That's a word for us, central of Round Rock. If the presence of God fills this church and we join him in his mission, the whole city will take notice. That's what happens in this text. We had the day, we had the spirit. Now in verses 5 through 13, the people responded. The people responded. The crowd heard the commotion the sound of the wind and the, the people speaking, and they all gather at this house. Now, the text tells us in verse five that uh, this crowd is made up of people from every nation on the earth. And verses nine through 11 tell us which people groups are represented here. And they thought they were in town for a feast. But by the providence of God, that's not why they were there. That God moved them there to Jerusalem, near enough to this house where they could hear the sound of the wind and hear the, the people speaking and hear the message of Jesus. Here's what I notice in verses 5 through 13, though. All heard the gospel message in a language they could understand. but there were two very different responses. See, in verse 12, it says, all were amazed. And then in verse 13, but some mocked. All were amazed, but some mocked. All heard the message, but only some were going to believe. See, what's about to happen in the rest of Acts 2 is that Peter, the apostle, is gonna stand up and he's gonna preach a message about Jesus from the Old Testament. Side note, we do not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because we feel like it's outdated, it's not useful, uh, we have a New Testament, we don't need the old one. The Apostle Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches a message about Jesus from the Old Testament. He thought the Old, the old Testament was good enough to share Jesus from. So my encouragement to you, read the Old Testament, learn it, know it. It's important. But Peter preaches this message. He demonstrates from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one you've been waiting for. And 50 days earlier, you guys were all here. You crucified him. You crucified our Messiah. And he is Lord. And the text says in Acts 2 that the people were cut to the heart. And they, they call out to, to Peter, brothers, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 people were saved on that day. All heard the message. Many respond, responded with belief. 
but some mocked. Not everyone who hears the gospel message truly believes. Not everyone who comes to church is part of the kingdom of God. Only those who repent and believe on the Lord Jesus will be forgiven and as Acts 2 puts it, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The day had come. The Spirit fell and the people responded in, in two different ways. So if you, if you wanted me to summarize this part of Acts 2, the, what's the big idea? I would say Jesus keeps his promise by sending the Spirit to empower his disciples. Who are we dealing with? Jesus is a promise keeper. He promised the Spirit in, in John 14 through 16. He says, I'm going to go away, but it's better if I go away because I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to be the one who comforts you, and he's going to be the one who teaches you. He's going to be the one who empowers you to accomplish the mission that I'm sending you out on. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses he tells the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell them what you've seen and heard, but I want you to wait in the city till you're clothed with power from on high. In Acts, he says, the Spirit's going to come and you're going to receive power. He promised that the Spirit would come. And now in Acts 2, the Spirit has come and Jesus has kept his promise. Jesus sent his Spirit. And one thing to consider is if Jesus kept this promise about the Spirit, don't you think he'll keep his other promises too? We know from the scriptures what Jesus has promised us. We know what we've been promised in the scripture, and if you don't know, read the scripture and find. What, what have you been promised? He's a promise keeper. Here in Acts 2, the promise he keeps, he, he sends the Spirit to empower his people, to empower his people to keep the mission. I want you to notice the response of these disciples. When the Spirit falls, they don't respond um, by creating like a holy huddle, us for no more. They speak up to the crowds. This is the mission of Jesus, that, that the name of Jesus and the work of Jesus would be proclaimed, proclaimed throughout all the earth. You, you maybe have heard the statement, preach the gospel but if necessary, use words. If necessary, use words. And I get what that means, but I wanna say very clearly, it is always necessary to use words. It is always, I understand your life should match what your mouth says, but listen, your mouth has to say something. As, as the Apostle Paul reasons, how are they going to be saved if they don't believe? And how are they going to believe if they don't know? And how are they going to know if nobody tells them? It's always necessary to use words. See, the mission of Jesus is to build the kingdom by preaching the gospel, by telling others about Jesus. It's what these disciples have done. And the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God to accomplish the work of God. Who are we dealing with? We're dealing with a promise keeper. Jesus is a promise keeper. Have you put yourself in the right position then? We figured out who we're dealing with. Have you put yourself in the right position to receive his promises? A couple of questions I want you to consider. 
One. How have you responded to the Spirit's work in our church? We see how the, the disciples responded to the Spirit's work in that house. How have you responded to the Spirit's work in our church? And let me tell you, the Spirit is at work in our church. We're seeing people confess sins. People speaking to the elders about besetting sins and wanting to turn from those things. That, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing people shaped and formed by the word of God. Last week on our midweek Bible studies for men and women, we had over 160 people there. If you don't know, that's a lot. And if you weren't there, come, you won't be alone. There's a lot of people there. We're seeing new people in our church every week. That's not normal. And, and here's the thing. For the last several years in Round Rock, people have been moving here from all over the world, from almost as if from every nation under heaven. In Acts 2, they'd come to Jerusalem for a feast. Right now, they're coming for work, or so they think. Maybe the Lord has brought them near enough to us that they can hear us speaking truth to them. The world is coming here for us to tell them about Jesus. The Spirit is at work across demographics. On Wednesday nights, our youth are full over there. The music is loud, the games are dumb, and there's nowhere to sit. Young adults are not just showing up. They're not dropping their kids off in the nursery and then going and grab coffee on Sunday morning. They're dropping their kids off and they're contributing. Young families are serving and starting new groups. We just, we just multiplied one of our 945 young adult groups, young, young families groups. That means more people can be a part. When you make one thing into two, more people can be a part. Our senior adults just did the same thing. They took one of their Sunday morning groups and made it two, so more people can be a part. Our senior adult demographic is growing. The Spirit is at work among us. God things are happening here at Central. How are you responding to what the Spirit is doing among us? Don't quench the Spirit. That's what Paul told the Thessalonians. Don't quench the Spirit. To, to quench is to pour water on something. Like, like the Spirit is burning in our midst. And to quench the spirit would be like, uh, to take your Nalgene, my wife tells me nobody knows what a Nalgene is. This is a Nalgene, now you all know. It used to say Nalgene there, it got rubbed off. But to quench the spirit, there's a fire and you're taking the lid off and you're dumping it. In July, uh, Ken dumped water on the stage. Uh, I won't do that because it scared everyone. Uh, to quench the spirit is to pour water on it. How do you quench the spirit? Probably a bunch of ways, but the ones I thought of, 
selfishness. The Spirit is at work among us, but your eyes are on yourself and your preferences and the way you like things. And you used to do it like this, but now it's kind of changing. You quench the Spirit with unbelief. God won't do that here. You quench the Spirit with cynicism. I've seen this kind of thing before, but just give it a couple of months, it'll go away. It's, it's just kind of the rhythm of things. It's the way it goes. That's, that's cynicism. It quenches the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit, but do what? Instead, fan the flame. See where God is at work among us and join Him in that work. Because you don't know how long it'll be here. You don't know how long the Spirit will be at work among us. We're not in control of that. Last weekend, if you were in the Academy parking lot on Friday, you probably saw something and, and laughed at me. It's what took place. With, my wife and I had gone to Academy, and we were in the parking lot, and over across the parking lot, there was a, uh, like a, a dust devil. And it was powerful. There was dirt flying up in the air, and it looked like a mini tornado. And it was so strong that it was pulling shopping carts like the shopping carts stacked together, pulling them across the parking lot. And we were watching, thinking, that's really cool. And then we realized it's headed right for us, and there's nothing we can do. We can't run. We can't. We just have to sit here and take it. And we, we did, and it hurt. Uh, but it was like for three or four seconds, and then it was gone. And that thing went across Maze Crossing over there by Academy and into that other shopping parking lot took the hat off my head and threw it across the street into that other parking lot. I had to go over there and get it. But it was only there for a moment, and then it moved on. We only got to experience it for a few brief moments. The Spirit is at work here at Central in our church, and we don't know how long He'll tarry here. So let's join him in the work. We want the spirit to come, have his way among us and to be like a fire in our church. And here's what we know, when the, when the church is on fire, the, the city's gonna notice and things won't be the same here. Things are gonna be different when the city takes notice. And we begin to accomplish the mission of God here in Round Rock. And we love our neighbors and the best way to love our neighbors is to join in God's mission and tell them about the mighty deeds accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's how we'll love our neighbors. So, so how do we put ourselves in a good position to receive the promises of God? Pay very close attention to how you're responding to the move of God among us. And the last thing is this, not only how, how have you responded to the work of God among us, how, how have you responded to the gospel? That's the starting place. How have you responded to the gospel? You know, the day had come, the spirit fell, and the people responded. The, the disciples told the people about Jesus in their own language. Here I am today. I, I only know one language. It's English. So here I am speaking to you in English, and here's what I'm telling you. Jesus is Lord. He was crucified, dead, buried, and then he rose from the dead. He is Lord. And one day he will return 
in judgment, where will you stand in relationship to him? He invites you, come, surrender your life, trust in the Lord Jesus, follow after him. That's the invitation. Where, where do you stand in regard to the gospel? Jesus keeps his promises, and when he keeps them, we wanna be in a good position to receive them. The question you have to wrestle with today is where have you positioned yourself? How have you responded to his work among us in this church? How have you responded to the gospel message?